If you're able to, keep the Bible um, open in front of you. And first and foremost, if you were here last week, well done for coming back. It wasn't easy, right? It's quite a dark book and the rest of it is pretty similar. But I'm glad that people have come back for a second week to hear what the preacher has to say to us in Ecclesiastes. And if you weren't here, the last week's message, we looked at the first chapter. And the message was this, without God, our life is this never-ending constantly cyclical world of purposelessness. All those clauses or phrases are important just to kind of get the nature of just how cyclical and how our chase after this world is difficult and in the end futile. So that's last week's message and this week's is he almost, last week he steps back, he he has a look at the world around him and kind of points out all the things that the world is. This week he steps in. This week we're going to see almost a case study of what he did as he chased after that inner feeling that he wanted to pursue. And as he chased after that, and we're going to look at his searching and his finding. We're going to take a step into this. And uh, the title I had, annoyingly, I sent the title before I came up with this brilliant line. I, the title I have is The Chase. So if you're an ITV fan, great, you can have that. But The per- Pursuit of Happiness is probably a better title for what he's doing just now. He's pursuing this happiness within himself. So if you're taking notes, that's the one I want you to take and not the chase, which is what I have up on the screen. But what we have today is the carrying on of the... Um, I'm going to pull this back just a little bit. I feel too close. There we go. What we have is the chase, the pursuing of the question, what is the point? What is the point in all of this? Am I good? Tim, sorry, I realised I've changed this and I've messed it up for you. I'm okay? We're good. You... You're going to have to deal with it anyway, right? So what is the point is the question that he's asking. What is the point in all of this? What is the toil, the toil that we do? What do we gain? And he's looking at the grooves of our heart. Now I want to say he's looking at the grooves of our heart and what we do is we try and fill those grooves. There's something within us that we try and fill or suppress or soothe. And this is what the preacher is going to do for us. He's going to be this case study for us to try and figure out what is going on. Because the word that he uses, the, the word vanity or hevel is the, the Hebrew word, the, the futility is what we looked at last week, or kind of meaninglessness. It's really hard to define what it is. But if we get the image within our, our minds of this groove that is in our soul that we're just trying to fill, that's what he's getting at. He wants us to figure out what that undefinable thing within us is and how we can find happiness in that. And the reason for this is if you have a Bible, flick through to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3 says this, 3 verse 11. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, but he, uh, he says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And what he means by that is that God has put into every single one of our souls this mark. He's put something into our souls that somehow, on some level, and it's hard to fully explain what is going on, but at some level our soul knows what it was like before the fall. Something within us knows what the world was like before sin entered and messed it up. At some level, 
that is the case. As this groove into our soul where it remembers what life was like before the fall. Where nothing weighed us down and where we were truly, truly happy. Our heart longs to get back there, groans to get back there. And there's this eternity shape in our soul. And what we do is we try and fill it with temporary things. There is this eternal mark within us. And we try and fill it or soothe it or just placate it with temporary things. But it never works. And that is what the preacher is getting at in our chapter today. The preacher wants us as Christians, if we're here today as Christians, to wake up to the reality that we get sucked into in our old way of thinking. Hiya, Maya. Maya was up very early this morning, so she had a little nap. Um, the, 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 The preacher wants us to wake up to the reality that what we do is we go back into our old way of thinking, thinking that the temporary will be able to fill the eternal holes within us be able to shape us. And we display that with everything that we do. So what we're going to do this morning is look at what the preacher has to say to us. And I have two points. The first is the searching. We're going to run through all of those verses and just look at what it is he searched for this happiness in. And then we'll look at his findings more briefly. So let's have a look at the task. If you have a Bible, verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem. And just to, just to clarify, I am not talking passively aggressive when I say the preacher. The person that I'm talking about here is the person who's written this, and he's the person who does this task. And there's, there's possible possibilities that it was Solomon who, who wrote this. There's also possibilities that it's not. But what we know is that there's this preacher who was a king who sought to apply his heart to seek out wisdom and search, um, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. That's his task, verse 13. I, the preacher, have done all these things, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and seek out wisdom in all that is done under heaven. And what we're going to see is like a montage of his life, where he goes and tries it in different things. So let's have a look at the first one, verse 16 to 18. His first search is in wisdom and in knowledge. I'll read verse 16 to 18. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my heart has, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. So he searches out wisdom and knowledge. So what you imagine, he's off to uni. He goes off in this search of knowledge, just to, to know how the world works or to know how better to relate with people. And he goes off to uni and he gets his degree and he gets his master's and he gets his doctorate. Then he might kind of go on the, the lecture circuit of Jerusalem going and teaching because he is the smartest person in all of Jerusalem. And we, we resonate with it. Sometimes we think that knowledge is power. There is, there is something that we love of the story of the person who is in the most deprived area, who makes it to the top of their field. They're, they're kind of the, the feel-good stories that we love to know. Well, this guy made it to the top of his field. He would have been in the Mensa of Jerusalem back in the last centuries. He was at the top of his field. And we learn... 
Verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. What we learn is actually that he enjoyed it. He enjoyed this learning. He enjoyed finding out about the world around him. He really, really enjoyed it and had a great experience. But his summary is that he applied his heart, verse 17, to no wisdom and no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. The, the, books, the book of Ecclesiastes is great because the poetry that it has is stuff that we still use today, but this was like when it was first written, the idea that you're chasing after something frustratingly, unable to catch it, unable to get to the end. And he says that his search in this was futile, and like a chasing after the wind, that the more he knew, the more wisdom he had, the more vexation he had. The smarter he became, the better able he was to see the world around him and how futile and vacuous it was. The more he increased in knowledge, the more he increased in sorrow. The more he understood, the darker his worldview was. And it's bleak. But the preacher doesn't stop here. He starts there, he moves on to his next stage. He's been at uni, now he's going to try the wild life. Verses 1 to 3 are uh, the next section that he, he goes to, and it's his search of pleasure and leisure. Just have a look at it. He leaves the uni life and he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold and folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. What, what he says is, I've done the mind stuff, and if I can't learn it, I'll just leave it. I'm going to head to the comedy clubs. So he goes down to the comedy clubs down in Jerusalem. He goes to find laughter. His life motto would have been live, laugh, love. That is, that is my motto. I'm going to find meaning and happiness in this. He would have went drinking. He might have had some um, white wine spritzers, some Jaeger bombs, maybe a cocktail. He felt fancy. He was after the pleasure and leisure of this world. And again, you see verse 3, he says, I enjoyed it. I searched my, with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. He's, he's got a good beer. He's in a dark room. The comedian's telling good jokes. He's loving it. He's having a good time. And he's searching for happiness. And I think of, of all of the searches here, this is one I think that we understand the most. The idea of if we can't learn it, we'll leave it and ignore it and pretend it's not there. We'll do all of these things just to not have to think about what is going on. I, uh, last week I gave a quote by a man called Blaise Pascal and then someone came up to me and said that they love Blaise Pascal too. So I'm going to give you more quotes from this man, Blaise Pascal. He's, he's a philosopher in the 17th century and his, his, his understanding of kind of the world is brilliant. And what he says is this. What he says is this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. So the cause of some people fighting and other people avoiding it, it is the same desire in both attended with a different view. 
The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. That's what Blaise Pascal says. He says, all of us search out happiness in everything. And that, that's what the pursuit of the preacher here is, that, that groove within our soul, just trying to, to either numb or placate or put something around so we don't notice it. All of us search out happiness. And so the preacher is our case study, and it's really helpful because who better to do this than the person who has everything? But he moves on to his next search. Look at verse 4 to 6. He moves on with his life. It's almost like we're watching him grow up. The first stage, he goes to uni. Then he has the wildlife. What's the next stage? That's right, gardening. He goes gardening next. Verses 4 to 6. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. The, all of these things, we understand why he searches in them. If you've ever built anything, even Ikea furniture, you know the satisfaction of finishing. You know the satisfaction of doing that. Or if you know the satisfaction of planting tomatoes, and all you do is water it sometimes. You know what? Most of the time, the rain does it for us. And there's a satisfaction in watching it grow. And this is where he searches for all of this meaning. But if this was Solomon, when we tell him, you should see the, the window seat I built, it's really great. You can sit on it and don't look underneath, you don't want to see what's happening there. But actually, if you sit on it, you can, it does the job. Or look at the plants that I've grown. Solomon would say, hmm, that's cute. That's cute that you can do that. You've made this little thing. Let me tell you some of the things that Solomon built. 2 Chronicles 8 tells us he built Tadmor in the wilderness. That is a city. And all the store cities that he built in Hamath, he built up Upper Bethon and Lower Bethon, fortified cities with walls, gates and bars and Baleth and all the store cities that Solomon had and all the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen. Whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, he did. He built everything. What we read here in these verses, I made myself gardens, parks and planted them in all the kinds of fruits. I made pools from which to water the forest of growing, um, growing trees. He would say to us, that's cute that you can do that. I've done way more. You, you planted some, some trees, you planted some bushes, I planted a forest. Solomon outdoes us on every single measure that we have. And the idea of that achievement, that satisfaction, the desire of being disciplined or just being creative, we all understand. This time he doesn't sum up. He leaves it because he rolls on to his next and final search. Verse 7 to 9. We've had him search in his uh, knowledge. We've had him search in his pleasure and leisure. Then just kind of just working and doing. There's something in that. Then he searches in power and money and influence. Look at verse 7 to 9. I bought myself, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10 as well. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was the reward of my toil. If you've ever seen Aladdin, maybe the new one, but the old one, definitely, the cartoons, you see where Prince Ali walks into the city. He, he walks in, just kind of swarming in the song, and goes, Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa. He, he walks in and he has everything. He has all of the animals. Let me just quote you some of the lines. He's got 75 golden camels. He has purple peacocks. He's got 53. When it comes to exotic type mammals, has he got a zoo? I'm telling you, it's a world-class menagerie. That is what the image that we have of the preacher or Solomon here. He has everything. It is grand. It is beautiful. He has power, influence, things, and fame. Do you see the, the influence that he has? If we were to go up to him and say, you should hear this song, it's really great. You should hear the, the song that I've got on my iPod. He would say, I got singers. That band that you like, I just bought them. I've got everything. I have everything that you could ever want. Or concubines, if this was Solomon as we hear, he had 700 concubines. There is not a sex fantasy that he would not have carried out. He had everything that we think the world wants. He had it all. He did his test and he had everything. In my search, I tried out everything I wanted, anything I desired I could get. And he searched in sex, in things, in power, in influence, and in fame. All of us seek out this happiness that the preacher sought out. All of us look for this happiness, this groove in our soul that we're trying to placate, that we're trying to soothe, that we're just trying to scratch because there's something within us. So that is all of his searching. Let's have a look at his findings. We're going to run right through the verses again, but just finish where he finishes in 2 verse 11. 2 verse 11, he says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He tried laughter, he tried pleasure, he tried drink, he tried knowledge, he tried building and growing, knowing all over the land. There was no one who could compare to him. And he finishes by saying, it was all vanity. It was all a chasing after the wind. There was ultimately nothing gained in all that I did. Meaningless, unlasting, futile, this, this myth that never soothes the soul. But it's not just at the end he, he does this. Let's just run through the verses and see what else he says in his findings. He starts the, the passage and finishes it with his kind of summary and his conclusion. He says in verse 13 to 15 in chapter 1, I applied my heart to seek out wisdom by all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business 
that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and we would agree he has. He's seen it all, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted he says it again in verse 17, it's a striving after the wind. Verse 18, the more knowledge he had, the more sadness he had. Madness, useless, short-lived, nothing gained. The crooked cannot be made straight. The soul's whole cannot be filled. The eternity scratch is unable to be itched. Maybe the other way around. The eternity itch is unable to be scratched with temporal things. All of this, he says, is vanity. That's deep, right? It does get better this week, but that is deep. That's what the passage tells us. What's amazing is what the preacher is doing. In his search for his meaning, there's a deeper meaning to it. Because subtly he tells us what we're doing when we do this. Subtly he tells us that in our search of knowledge and pleasure of doing and having all that our hearts are searching for, we're searching for something that is lost. Look at verse 4 to 6 of the chapter, of chapter 2. He says, I made great works, built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, what's interesting is it's the words that are used there. Planting, trees everywhere, animals, garden, growing, making, doing, working, are all meant to remind us of the garden in Genesis 1-2. The toiling with which he has is something that comes when the fall comes in Genesis chapter 3. The perfect world is what we're searching for. That, that's what he, he's getting at. It's subtle here, but it gets bigger as we go through the book. But I think it's important for us to, to see what he's saying. That in all of our searching, what we're searching for is that happiness that we lost in the beginning. Our souls are searching for something. Then that is the Garden of Eden. The thing which God said was good. The preacher says, vanity. The thing that God said was very, very good the preacher says, is vanity. We are trying to restore what was crooked, trying to locate the throbbing soul groove that we have. In all of our pursuits, we're trying to get back to that. And the findings have two points for us. There's two major kind of ways that I think, and we'll finish with these, two major ways that I think we take hope from all of this. That this isn't deeply depressing, but this is genuinely life-giving. This is liberating to know this message. The first is that Jesus brings, Jesus' death brings an end to our searching. That if we were to live out in the world today and search all around, we would never find happiness that we're searching for. We'd never have that, that soul groove fixed. What Jesus' death does is that thing that we're searching for, that relationship with our creator and maker, which satisfies us and gives us joy, he gives us. In his death, we are able to have life because we will know our creator. 
Jesus says himself of his death, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' death on the cross restores the brokenness within us. It fixes that groove in our heart that we yearn for and fills it with the only eternal thing that is God. It fills our soul. So when we're looking for that soul satisfying in things like status, in in wisdom, in being known or being loved by someone, or in our fancy house in Collington or our new car, in drink, in sex, in power, in knowledge, when we chase after in those things, it will never be found there. And those things will crush us. We are putting weight and hope and expectation on things that were never meant to take all of our weight, hope and expectation. Only God can take that and is a stable foundation on which we can do that. All of our searching and longing is for God. And Jesus' death offers us God himself. Jesus' death brings us life. And that's the the kind of big picture thing of what's going on. What he shows us is we search in all these things because we think that'll bring us happiness. And it never will. But the second way, I think, is why Ecclesiastes is a freeing book. So it's freeing because we can know God. We can have genuine happiness because we will know, or genuine joy, because we know the creator, our God, and we know the hope. We have our hope in him and what he will do for us. There's this future aspect to it. But Ecclesiastes is brilliant because he doesn't finish there. I don't know if you noticed that the gifts that he talks about aren't inherently bad. So things like wisdom or pleasure or things or working or doing aren't in themselves inherently bad. We were chatting about this in in small groups yesterday. If you're chatting with people who are not Christians, to turn and say to them, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And they say, no, no, I find find meaning in all this. And you say, no, 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 you're wrong. That'd be ridiculous, right? That'd be ridiculous to say, "You, you don't know what you feel. This is how you feel. There is genuine satisfaction in doing these things. Well, the preacher tells us there's just no gain in that. And he goes on to say how death affects that next week. Sam will touch on that. But what he does here is it tells us that the gifts themselves are good and to be enjoyed and it frees us to enjoy them. Let's have a look through the text quickly. Verse 17 of chapter 1, when he he searches out knowledge, he says this, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that, sorry, verse 16, sorry. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over me in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He enjoyed it. He actually enjoyed the studying and learning all these different things. Have a look at verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So there's a way in which wine can cheer your body. And we can say amen to that too. It's good. Have a look at verse 10. This is the big one. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. And then flick through to 24 verse and 26 of chapter 2. This is kind of the conclusion of the argument. We split this um, long section into two. So Sam's going to take it 
next week, and there's different things to learn in the latter half, but it finishes, this kind of conclusion is this. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. In one sense, he's saying, there's nothing better to do. You may as well just throw the toys out of the pram. There's nothing better. Just enjoy life, drink and be happy. And that's it. That's all you're going to get. But what he says in verse 26 To the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. With God, in all of our chasing of these things, if we understand them rightly as gifts from God to be enjoyed, we can have joy, wisdom, happiness in them. We are able to enjoy them. So that is with knowledge or comedy or good wine or sex or your garden or the new extension you're building or your family, your friends, your job, your car. All of those things are given by God to be enjoyed. Ecclesiastes is freeing. Your job is not utterly meaningless, is not what Ecclesiastes is telling us. Your job is to be enjoyed and found and to find satisfaction in it. There's nothing better for a person than he is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. The preacher tells that God has given us these things to be enjoyed when used rightly and knowing that they are gifts from our creator. Those things will never fully satisfy us. But God gives joy through his gifts as a stepping stone to remember our creator. We are able to enjoy these things guilt-free when we recognize that they are from our creator. So this means, let me just run through what this means. It means enjoy a good cappuccino and a scone and build a house. Enjoy going out to the theater and getting those half-time ice creams or plant more tomatoes. Do those things. Enjoy them. Enjoy spending time with your family, camping, Grow your business, enjoy working hard on a project right up to the deadline. Go have some really nice wine, enjoy your marriage, walk the dog, enjoy staying at home with the kids all day, study and learn. Ecclesiastes tells us, enjoy them. Go out and do those things because God is our good creator who has given us those things. Not to find our satisfaction in, but to realize that they're gifts from a good God. The preacher's searching was in vain because he thought those things would bring joy and fill the groove. But once we have found God, our hearts are whole and new and we can have joy in all that he has given us. It means that we can enjoy happiness just sitting back and relaxing by a fire, reading a good book. And it's not to say that people who do not know God, do not find happiness in those things. But the Christian is able to understand the fullness of this, that these are gifts from a heavenly Father and his provisions for our life, despite the futility of the world around us, knowing that all of these gifts are given to us to enjoy and hold them lightly and freely. 
joyfully knowing that they come from a God who has promised so much more than this. That this is only the beginning. They will never take all of our hope and expectation, but they point us towards a God who does. I think there's a line from um, David Gibson's book that I'll finish with, and it's, uh, he talks of just what is going on in this, and he says, the gift of God does not make this meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes the vanity enjoyable. The gift of God does not make the meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes this vanity enjoyable. So in all of our toil, fear God and enjoy his good gifts as gifts. That's what Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 tells us. With Jesus as Savior, eat, drink, and enjoy your life. Let's pray thanking God for this. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we um, come to you as a good God who gives us good gifts, that we, we search to, to soothe our soul in things that will never satisfy. Only you give us real life. You give us joy and satisfaction and hope. Help us as a, as a church to look out on the world and see where we are falling into our old ways, falling into the trap of old ways where we're chasing after, striving after, straining after, stressing after things that ultimately don't matter. Help us to remember that you are a good God who gives good gifts, that because of what Jesus has done, we have life abundantly in all of its fullness and are able in light of that to enjoy the things that you've given us help us to remember this not just as we wait here but as we go about our week as we go about and into all of the things that have been stressing us into the futility and just the frustration of the world help us to remember that you are what gives us joy you give us joy in all of these things. We thank you for Jesus and all that he has done for us. Amen. Amen.